is bread, which is what we'll see this morning in these verses. I said before that John 6, in a sense, this long chapter here in the middle of the Gospel of John, is all about bread. It's all about bread. The problem is, for us, I think, uh, the way we think about bread today and the way these Jews would have thought about bread is very different. This is one of those areas, I think, where a knowledge of the historical context is helpful to us, and a knowledge of even the wider biblical context would be helpful to us. I think when we come to John 6, we miss some of the inner meaning of the passage if we don't appreciate how a Jew in those days would have thought about bread in their day-to-day life. So there's, there's really three sort of contextual factors I want to throw out to you, three things about bread in those days that I think are important for us to appreciate if we're going to be able to enter in or to understand Jesus' statement in verse 35 that He is the bread of life, that those who hunger can be fed and satisfied. So the first is this. Bread, for the Jews of those days, was the staple diet. It was the staple diet. Now, we Americans today don't think in terms of staple diets. You could have Italian on Monday night, Chinese on Tuesday night, Mexican on Wednesday night, all different kinds of food groups can be represented. We don't really have a staple diet in our Western context, but in many places in the world, uh, you do have a staple diet, often made up of rice, rice and fish, or rice and beans, or rice and chicken. Literally every meal, at least one or two meals during the day, you're going to have rice represented as sort of the staple diet of that particular culture. Well, Well, bread was like that for the Jews. Bread was part of their staple diet, nothing more basic than bread, nothing more fundamental, nothing more essential. And as bread was the staple diet for these Jews, meaning they ate it literally every day, it was so necessary for sustenance and for life, it was the most ready-made symbol in that culture for life itself. All throughout the Bible, uh, bread is introduced as a symbol for life because it was representative of that in a real way for the Jews. You don't have bread, you're not going to live very long. Now, that leads to the second, I think, important kind of contextual factor that we should appreciate, we should understand if we're to get the most out of this passage. Secondly, we need to appreciate that many people in those days died for want of bread. It's one of the most common ways, actually, that people would have died in those days for lack of bread. The inability to make bread or to find bread, or to purchase bread, was a real problem. That's why in the Bible, famines and food shortages are such a big deal. Nowadays, if there's a famine, planes could fly overhead and drop bread on us, or we could find some other sort of food we could eat, right? Uh, But in those days, a famine was bad news. You're, You're literally dealing with a food shortage. You have to parson off rations for the family, and some members of the family might die for want of bread. And so, To find, as these Jews think they've found, an unending supply of bread was, in essence, to ensure your personal safety for the rest of your life. If you had an unending supply of bread, this is the ultimate social security plan for the Jews of those days. And that leads to the third contextual factor about bread. Thirdly, in terms of income for these Jews, It's estimated that roughly 85% of Jews' income, family income, would be spent acquiring food, of which, again, bread was the staple. 85%. I can tell you, in my house, 
we definitely don't spend 85% of our income on food. We have food in plenty, food at affordable prices. We don't even spend 50% of our income uh, on food, not even close, really. Uh, but for these Jews, uh, you literally worked for your bread. You worked for your daily bread. That's why Paul, when he says in another place, uh, he who does not work will not eat or shall not eat, he literally means that. Um, to have a job, to be able to work, meant literally feeding your family. And so, if you're like these Jews and you think you found an unending supply of bread, you've just won the lottery. You just hit the jackpot. You don't have to work another day in your life. Or if you work, you could spend all that money on golf retreats or something like that. You got 85% of your income back if you could just get bread for free from Jesus. All of that, I think, will be helpful, that context, in terms of appreciating what bread would have meant to these Jews and what Jesus would have meant when he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. So now here's what I want to do for this sermon this morning. I simply want to walk through uh, the first several verses of this passage, and I want to really arrive at verse 35. And I hope this sermon to be principally a sermon on verse 35, but I want to sort of walk up to that. And then we'll ask some questions of verse 35 and what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. So let's have our eyes on the text and walk through now these verses in John chapter 6. Let's, let's begin with verse 25. So these crowds have come over on boats. They found Jesus. Clearly, they have no knowledge that Jesus miraculously walked on water in verses 16 through 21. His disciples know that, but of course, these crowds don't. They just find him, and they ask this question, verse 25, Rabbi. When did you come here? And then in verse 26, Jesus doesn't interact with that question at all. He just doesn't answer the question. It might have been wonderful for them to know how Jesus got there, but for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't interact with the question, but rather addresses their motives in seeking him. He says they seek him not because they saw the signs, but essentially because their bellies were filled. They ate their fill of the loaves. You're not here because you saw signs. You're here because you had a lot of bread and you want some more. Now, Rex pointed out very helpfully last week, talked about the motive of the crowds in the first verses of John 6. Why did they come to Jesus? Why did they uh, come and find him and, and follow him out there into the wilderness? Verse 2 tells us, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. God follows Jesus, verse 2, because they saw signs. But Jesus is now saying, verse 6, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. There's a contradiction here. How shall we understand this? Verse 2, you're here because you saw signs. Verse 26, you're not following me because you saw signs. What are the possible solutions to that little bit of tension there? Could it have been that the crowd's motives had changed? They saw the signs, they had some level of interest in Jesus because of these signs, but then they ate the bread, and then they just kind of forgot about all of that, and we're all about bread. That's a possibility. I personally think that's unlikely, not the best way to relieve the tension. Maybe it could be that John knows better than Jesus. Uh, so John knew that the crowds came because they wanted bread, and Jesus somehow missed that. That's unthinkable to me. Okay, Jesus created these people. He knows their thoughts. He knows their mind. Could it be that John's just an old man, and he forgot what he wrote in verse 2. And write something different in verse 26. All of these solutions, I don't think, uh, really help. They won't do. Rather, I suggest that John, Apostle John, subtle writer that he is, is tipping us off 
that one can see the sign and not truly see the sign. There's two ways of seeing it. You can see the sign, but not see what the sign signified or signified, the significance of it. In another place, Jesus says, seeing you do not see. I think that's the idea that John is getting at in this text. You saw the sign, but you, you failed to really see what was going on there. You thought this was just about filling your hungry stomach, but there was a larger meaning. There was something that you were meant to see that you failed to see, seeing you did not see. Sure, you came because you saw the signs, but, but you failed really to see what the sign signified. I think that's what John is getting after here. So Jesus, in verse 26, is essentially saying, look, you missed the whole point of that miracle. You failed to see the point, what the sign itself signified. And then he says something terribly important in verse 27. He says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And that's interesting. Don't work for the food that perishes, and we assume we supply the verb from the first clause to the second clause. Rather, work for the food that endures to eternal life. Two problems there, potential problems there, that, that I want us to interact with. First of all, is Jesus saying, uh, don't work in order to earn money to buy food? Don't labor for the bread that perishes. Don't work for the food that perishes. I don't think he's saying that at all. It would be to ignore other teachings of Jesus, the wider context of the whole Bible. Work in almost every book of the Bible is commended as a good and godly thing, and in some places very specifically so. I mentioned a moment ago, Paul says, if a man shall not work, also he shall not eat. I think that's 2 Thessalonians 3. Ephesians 4, 28, let him who stole steal no longer, rather let him work with his hands laboring that he might have something to give to those who are in need. I think Jesus is saying don't, don't work your job. So those of you who work the eight to five or the nine to six, that's commended by God. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying is that you work your job for 45 years and you have your retirement party and there's the cake and there's all your colleagues and associates and friends around you to celebrate your retirement and they say, Bob, what did you do it all for? You don't say, I did it all for bread, all kinds of bread, pompernickel, rye, bread with butter, bread with jam. I did it all for the bread. I did it all for retirement. It's like as many golf retreats as I want. I did it all so I could have as many family reunions in my retirement with all the kids and grandkids. That's what this was all about. All my working for all these years was for the purpose that I could have some bread, some sort of pleasure, some sort of satisfaction in this life. That's not the end game. That's not the goal. Rather, earning of the bread is productive towards something else, which we'll see in a moment. So, brother, sister, God commends your nine to five. Work. But don't work in such a way that it really is all for the bread or the pleasure or the money that's productive rather to something else. Second problem we might have with this text, and this, this may be a little bit more important, a little more significant for our hearts. Do not work for the bread that perishes, but rather work for the food that endures to eternal life. Is John commending work-based salvation? Strive to enter by the narrow gate. 
work for the food that endures to eternal life? Is he saying that we're saved by our works? No, not at all. I think actually the answer comes to us in the next few verses here. Verse 28, then they said to him, they understand he wants them to do a work. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, like if we're going to have bread forever, what works can we do? We want that, so give us some works to do. I'm sure we can do them. Just let us know what it is you want us to do. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I think Jesus intends huge irony in that statement. You want to work? You want something to do? You want to know how this bread is going to be earned? Here's your work. Believe. Have faith. Look to Christ. Trust me. That's what you bring to the table. A growling stomach and an open mouth. Parched lips and a thirsty soul. And all you're called to do is believe. You want to call faith a work? That's fine. But let's be clear on what it is. This, this is you holding out your empty cup so that Jesus can fill it. That's the only work you bring to the table. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You want to work? It's faith. This bread can't be earned by rubbing some beads together. It can't be earned through penance. It can't be earned by being at the church every time the doors are open. It can't be earned by having a well-ordered family. It comes by faith. That's how you get the food that endures to eternal life, believing on the one whom God has sent, namely Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. I appreciate what D.A. Carson has said about this verse, work for the food that endures to eternal life, tells him to believe. He says, this is John's version of Romans 3.28, which says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you want to talk about faith as a work? That's fine. Jesus calls it a work in this text, but let's be clear. Faith is raising the empty glass. Psalm 81, verse 10, God says, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's what we bring to the table. An open mouth. A hungry heart. A growling stomach. And God says, I'll do the rest. I'll provide bread. I will fill it. But then the crowds demand that Jesus do something for them to justify their faith in him. Okay, you want us to believe in you. Why should we believe in you? Verse 30, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they bring up Moses, their great father. And they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, referring back to God's miraculous provision of manna to the people of Israel in the wilderness, under the covenant with Moses. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do, Jesus? If you're a prophet greater than Moses, I mean, at least you can match that. Through Moses, we had bread given to us every day. We'd wake up, there would be bread on the ground. Miraculously, that happened through the covenant with Moses and through God's provision of bread. Are you going to do that or maybe something greater, perhaps? And then Jesus sets them straight in verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. Like, I hate to break it to you, but that wasn't Moses giving you bread. Don't try to set up this competition between me and Moses. That was my Father providing bread. More than that, verse 33, he says, the bread of God, the, the true bread, 
is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Like, like manna, just a pale reflection of the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, for these crowds, this is like too good to be true. Like, like true bread coming down from heaven, give life to the world, like feed everybody. Not just those of us who are here, but our family back home. Gives life to the world. This is like we've hit the jackpot. This is better than we could have even thought. Okay. But then Jesus burst the bubble. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you read all of John 6, 70 plus verses, verse 35 is the hinge. The enthusiasm over Jesus, the excitement about his ministry and what he brings, just just is one unending wave, higher and higher and higher of expectation. And it climaxes in verse 34, give us this bread always. It just gets better and better for these crowds. And the reaction gets more and more positive. But from 35 on, it's more and more negative, more and more unbelief, lack of faith. As it becomes clearer and clearer who Jesus is and what he brings as the bread of life and what he calls people to as disciples and as followers of him, the reaction gets worse and worse. He's eventually going to say, several verses from now in John 6, uh, that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they say, this is a hard statement. Who can take it? I don't like this. If he's talking about giving life to the world and dropping bread from heaven, I'm on board. If he's telling me he's going to die and there's going to be his blood and bread, blood and body given for the world, and I have to enter into that by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's a hard statement. I don't like that. And then, reading on, verse 30, 66, excuse me, will sort of seal the deal. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Excitement up to verse 35. Then he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the issue. You have to come to me. Don't labor for the bread that perishes. Labor for the bread that endures to everlasting life, which my Father will give you. You have to come to me. And as these crowds come to understand that, they depart from him. They leave him. They follow him no longer. Though in the minutes that remain, I want to beg you not to make that same mistake. Not to follow the crowds. Not to labor for the food that perishes, but to believe on Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who offers himself as the bread of life to hungry people and to thirsty people. So now I'd like to open up what it is that Jesus means by these words in verse 35, that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Two questions I want to ask of this verse in the time that remains. Two questions. The first is this, what does this text teach us about Jesus? Verse 35, what does this text teach us about Jesus? Secondly, what does this text teach us about the nature of true saving faith? What does it teach us about Jesus? What does it teach us about faith? So first of all, what does this text teach us about Jesus? Four things. First of all, this text teaches us that Jesus is what we need. Jesus is what we need. 
We need Jesus like we need bread. And at this point, it's helpful to think about those Jews. Nothing more basic than bread. Nothing more essential than bread. Nothing more necessary to sustain life than bread. Kids, you might think about it this way. Jesus is the food of life. Whatever it is that you eat, bacon, eggs, cereal, pasta, whatever, Jesus is the food of life. And as necessary as food is to sustain life, Jesus is necessary. Jesus is vital. Jesus is essential. And Jesus says, think of me like you would bread. I'm what you need. You can't live without me. You can't have life without me. I'm the bread of life. I'm what gives life to people. Jesus is what we need. Jesus is so foundational, so essential. He's the most basic thing that the human heart needs. A relationship with Jesus Christ, God's own Son, the true and living God, the Savior of the world, the living water, the light who has come into the world. We need Him, the bread of life. Jesus is what we need. But secondly, and I think this is a separate idea. It's going to sound like I'm repeating myself, but I think it's a separate idea. Jesus meets our deepest needs. Jesus is what we need. If you came here this morning and didn't know that, you need a new appetite for Jesus that you didn't know you needed. More than that, Jesus meets our deepest needs. Like some of the cravings that are already there. So verse 35 says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Like there was something already there. And whoever believes on me will not thirst. Jesus is not just the bread of life. He's the solution to our hunger. Jesus is not just living water. He's the solution to our thirst. We know he's obviously not talking about physical hunger and physical thirst, right? Just said, don't labor for the food that perishes, like you eat it, digest it, it's expelled from your body. Don't, don't labor for that food, but the food that endures for eternal life. Not talking about physical hunger and physical thirst. That said, Jesus is going to take care of that as well. In the new heavens and the new earth. Like you literally will never hunger again if you have Jesus and you die in Christ. Jesus is deeply invested and cares very much about our physical bodies. And he has arranged it so that you will never be cold again, You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again if you are in Christ. Like literally, he'll take care of your physical body as well. But that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, there are profound spiritual hungers and spiritual thirsts that we all feel, we all experience, and Jesus meets those needs, our deepest needs. Everyone, everyone wants safety wants security, wants a sense of home, a place where we're loved and welcomed and affirmed. All of us want love. St. Augustine said that 1,500, 1,600 years ago. To love and to be loved is all I ever wanted, he says. We all want love. Like we're all craving affection. At the deepest heart level, we all want affirmation. We want compassion. We want love and safety and security. And Jesus meets these needs. He provides for these needs. 
Those who hunger after these things, those who thirst after these things, will never hunger, never thirst if they have Jesus who is the bread of life. If you have him, you'll be satisfied. Your stomach won't be growling and panting and craving after all these other things that you try to fill up with these other things in your life. You ever notice how, how a young man or young woman goes off to college and all of a sudden they become like a completely different person? Come home and they're talking about ultimate Frisbee. You're like, you never liked ultimate Frisbee. Look, your, your teenager, your college student, your freshman child doesn't love ultimate Frisbee as much as you, they think they do. They love the affirmation that comes with it. They love the friendship and camaraderie that comes with it. They love the sense of community that comes with it. All of a sudden, they're into indie rock. I don't even know what that is, okay? You don't like indie rock. I know you've been in this house for 18 years. Why all this? They found a community where they think these basic needs are satisfied and helped and met. There's all sorts of things people are using to fill up these hungers and these thirsts. Things like marijuana, things like heroin, things like alcohol, things like sex, things like family, even good things that we would commend. Things like vacations, things like money, things like power, things like influence. We're all trying to quench these native hunger pangs that we feel. This native thirst that we have in our hearts. We're born into the world with all of these things. And Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you feast upon me. You have me as the bread of life. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. Like you'll be satisfied. I'll fill that hole. I'll meet that void. And unlike all those other things you might go after, I will never disappoint you. Like, like you'll never need to go back and get another hit of whatever it is. I will be everything that you need. I'll satisfy your heart and I'll meet your deepest longings. Third thing this text teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is what we need. Jesus meets our deepest needs. Thirdly, to have Jesus is to have eternal life. Again, it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but there's slight differences in these points. To have Jesus is to have eternal life. We have what we need. He meets our deepest needs eternally, perfectly, unalterably, for all eternity, he satisfies us. He gives to us eternal life. Because to have Jesus is not just to have the bread of life today. It's to have it forever. That's what these people are so excited about. The bread, we could have this forever. Now they want physical bread that they can put in their mouth. Jesus is saying, I come as the bread of life. Eternal life. And he who has me will never perish. He who has me will live forever in paradise with the son, the son of God. Now, it's at this point that I want to remind you of a distinction that was made several weeks ago when we think about eternal life, having eternal life from Jesus. He promises us that. If we believe on him, he's gonna give us eternal life. But we should not think of it in this way, that like Jesus is handing out life certificates. Like, here's your eternal life, go enjoy the eternal life. It's not what Jesus is doing. When Jesus gives a soul eternal life, he gives them himself. And they only have life insofar as they are connected and attached to Jesus. To have eternal life is to have Christ himself. It's not like here's your food stamp, get in the queue, get in the line, and someone will give you bread at the door, and you can always come back and get more bread. That's not how it works. Jesus himself is the bread. 
It's not something separate from him. You can't come to Jesus just for some perceived benefits that he might give you. You come to Jesus because you're coming to Jesus and you want to have Jesus as the bread, as joy, as satisfaction, as delight, as love, as safety, as security. Come to me, he says. Stop asking for manna. Stop laboring for all this food that perishes. You have to come to me, the bread of life. And we have life only insofar as we're connected to Jesus himself. Because to have life is to have the Lord Jesus and to have him in abundance. Fourthly and finally, the fourth thing John 6.35 teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus offers himself as bread to everyone. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's offering this bread to the world. He's offering himself to the world. All you need to do is come with some hunger, come with some thirst, and Jesus will meet you and satisfy you. There's a number of texts that might have been in the mind of Jesus' disciples as they looked on at this whole scene unfolding. One of them that I just assume had to be there if they knew their Bibles well would be Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. I'll read these verses for you. One of those precious promises in all of Scripture, precious gospel offers in all of Scripture. I, I wish I could stand on top of the steeple of this building and shout this to Winston-Salem. It's just a wonderful offer. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. You got anything to bring? That's fine. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Do not labor for the bread that perishes. Why are you spending your money on that? Why are you wasting your soul on that? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Like, like come and eat the good food that I give you, which is my flesh. Come to the bread of life. Come drink the good wine, which is my blood. You don't have any money. You have nothing to bring. Whoever you are, come, and I'll satisfy you. Delight yourself in good food, the food I will give you. It's a remarkable promise. It's the gospel itself. There nestled in Isaiah 55. This free invitation that anyone who would come can come and enjoy the bread of life. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all you who labor, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. From gentle and lowly in spirit, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. You got a burden? You're weary? You're heavy laden? I could carry that for you. And I can give you my yoke, which is easy, and my burden, which is light. You'll find rest for your souls. You'll find safety. You'll find security. You'll find a home if you come to me, Jesus says. Now, in John's gospel, I said this in the very first message in this series, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel record his public ministry. It's about three and a half years 
that we go through in the first 12 chapters. Jesus is out and about, talking to people, talking to crowds, talking to Pharisees. Then in verse 13, to the rest of the book, is the last week of his life. He shut up to his disciples, ministering privately to them, 13 through 17, and then chapter 18, he's crucified, and he has resurrection, etc., etc. So the first 12 chapters, Jesus' public ministry, out and about among the people. And in every single one of those chapters, with the exception of chapter 2 and chapter 9, he makes a universal offer for people to come to him and believe on him. Statements like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We're going to see one of the greatest ones in John 7, verses 37 through 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And again, our text says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's one qualification. One qualification. You want to come to Jesus today? You want to have him as the bread of life? You need one thing. A hungry stomach. Thirsty lips. There's an old song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sore. There's a line in there that says, Let not conscience make you linger. It's old language. Nor of fitness fondly dream. Like, can I fit myself for this? I gotta get myself ready to come to Jesus. Nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to know your need of him. All you need to do to have the bread of life is to know that you're hungry, that you're thirsty, that he will satisfy you. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Oh, I want safety. I want shelter. I want rest. Oh, I want to be loved. I want affection. I'm sick of being disappointed. I'm sick of being abused. I'm sick of being let down. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Jesus has come to me. I can fix that. I can address that because I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes on me will never thirst. Secondly, and more quickly now, in the moments that remain, what does this text teach us about the nature of faith? We've seen what it teaches us about Jesus. We need Jesus. He meets our deepest needs. To have him is to have eternal life, and he offers that life to everybody. But now what does this teach us about faith? If we want to have the bread of life, Two things I think this text teaches us. If Jesus is the bread of life, then faith is what? First of all, faith is active. Faith is active. There is no such thing as passive faith. You do not just grow up into faith. Like, 
I've always had faith, and I just kind of grew up into it. It was my parents' faith, and I kind of inherited it, and now I have faith. Faith is not a passive thing. It can't be transferred to you from somebody else. You don't inherit faith. Faith, by its very nature, is active. It's participatory. I think we see this in a major way in John's gospel, and the, the verbs he uses to describe faith. Faith is described as eating, as drinking, as coming, as knowing, as seeing, as tasting, as having. Faith by its very nature is an active thing. We see it even in the Lord's Supper, like we're going to observe in a moment. You, you take, you eat, that's a symbol of faith. Silly to think of that even as a work, but you, you, you take the provision God has given, you seize it, faith is active, faith believes, faith is restless, it's doing something, it's, it's reaching forward, it's eating, it's drinking, it's participating. And so if you're hungry, you don't just become not hungry, you take the bread, you sit at the feast, you pull up a chair, take that cup to your mouth, you take that bread to your mouth. You do not inherit faith, you just grow up into faith. Faith itself has to be active. It's likened to eating and drinking. But now secondly, and the more important point for our purposes this morning, what does this text teach us about faith? Faith is, like as a matter of definition, faith is the soul's satisfaction in Christ. Faith is the soul's satisfaction in Christ. You say, what are you talking about? Where do you see that? It'll become apparent in a moment. Faith is the soul's satisfaction in Christ. Faith is not, faith is not mere mental assent. It's more than intellectual agreement about the basic facts surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, okay, saying that happened, I could get on board with that. Like, mentally, I assent to that. I agree to that. Intellectually, I could study this out. I could believe that it happened. That's not faith. Faith isn't less than that, but it's a whole lot more than that. Faith is not just give me the facts to get on board with. There are facts we've got to get on board with. You need to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and God's own Son, that he's a savior for sinners, that you are a sinner and you need him in order to be saved and the way by which you can be attached to him, united to him is by faith. You've got to believe all of that. But there's more than that. Faith is more than mere mental assent. Faith is a whole-souled delight in Christ. Satisfaction in Christ. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say to these people, doesn't say this anywhere in his gospel, uh, I am the answer. I am the argument. I'm the formula. I'm the quotient. I'm the solution. He doesn't convey it in those terms. Rather, he takes the most ready-made symbol for life and satisfaction and health and says, you've got to come to me like a loaf of warm bread and have me, delight in me, be satisfied in me. It's more than just cerebral agreement, like, sure, I'm very analytical, I can agree with that, I can get on board. No, faith is delighting in God, being satisfied in Jesus, having Him as the, the answer to your soul's hunger and your soul's thirst. He's described as bread. He's described as true drink, as living water. 
And therefore, he is to satisfy the soul. The Bible will not permit us to have a view of faith that is anything less than whole soul delight and satisfaction in Jesus. Like, you can't just say the news is true. It has to be good news. Like, news my soul loves. Like, I don't just agree with the facts. My life depends on the facts, and I love the facts. Like, Jesus died and rose for me, and I love that, and I love him. And my fear is, my fear is, that there are lots of people who think that by just agreeing to the facts, they're right with God. That's not what faith is. Like, you can't just believe that Jesus lived and died and rose. Do you love Jesus? Does your soul lay hold of him as the bread of life? Do you know in Jesus the answer and the satisfaction of your hunger and of your thirst? Are you looking to him and giving yourself to him with whole-souled delight in who he is? This is how Jesus will be had or he will not be had at all. As the bread of life, as satisfaction to all of our deepest needs, as the answer to the soul's hunger and the soul's thirst. Do you love the Lord Jesus? And do you lay hold of him with satisfaction and with delight? There's no half-heartedness. I need him. I want him. I love him. He's precious to me. He's life to me. As the psalmist says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a field And for joy of what he found in that field, he sells all he has for joy for what he's found in Jesus. Have you experienced that? Faith is never less than mental assent. Always more. It's delight in Christ. Love for Christ. Coming to him as one who needs him. And to find in him the soul satisfaction. Closing just a word to you who would not identify yourself as followers of Jesus. I urge you, I urge you, don't labor for the bread that perishes. What a waste of a life. What a waste of a life. What what did you do it all for? What is this all about? This rat race sort of dog-eat-dog world we live in. What's it all about? Some bread and butter and strawberry jam. Really. Really. Ask you kids to think about that. Like, what's it all going to be about? You're going to labor your whole life, work? What is this? Why are you going to school? Why do you want to go to college? Why do you want to get that job? Why do you want to be with that guy or that girl? Why do you want to have that sort of career? Why do you want to pursue that hobby? Really, this is, this is the end of everything. To go fishing with the boys? To get drunk on a Friday night? To have as, as much physical satisfaction with as many partners as you can have? Like, what's it all for? Don't labor for the bread that perishes, but rather labor for the food that endures to eternal life. 
I am offering to you, Jesus is offering to you, paradise with God forever. Eternal life, the soul's satisfaction, whole-souled delight. You can have that today. And Jesus is telling us it's through coming to him as the bread of life. And this is his promise to you. This is his promise to you. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes will never thirst. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we confess deep down in our hearts we have known hunger and we have known thirst. And we say with nothing but joy and gladness and thanksgiving, those of us who are your children, that you have fulfilled your promise, that we have found in your Son the bread of life. You have satisfied our deepest longings. And you have quenched our hunger pangs and our native thirsts. And we know that we have that only in part now and we'll have that in fullness one day. We thank you that it is your will, your pleasure to give eternal life to all those who ask of it. We pray that now as we come before the Lord's table that we would be cognizant of these realities that you offer yourself, your son, as true bread from heaven, that all of us can feast upon him by faith and the sacrifice that he has provided. May that be very real to us in these moments. Lord, please come. Convict us all of our native hunger and thirst and satisfy us with true bread, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you.